The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And to help us do that today is one of my favorite guests, Ms. Patty Lavera. She is the Assistant Director of Food and Water Watch, where she coordinates the food team. Patty holds a bachelor's degree in environmental science from Lehigh University and a master's degree in environmental policy from the University of Michigan. Before joining Food and Water Watch, Patty was the deputy director of the Energy and Environment Program at Public Citizen and a researcher at the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice. Welcome, Patty. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, you're so informed on all of these politically charged issues. And We were talking before we got on air about how curious it is that respected news outlets, specifically the New York Times, the Washington Post, all seem to send consumers this message of, hey, there's scientific studies saying that genetically modified food poses no health threat. And yet the Food and Water Watch did a great review, not only debunking this claim that GMOs pose no health threat, but also looking at the new GMO labels. So I want to be able to talk about both of those things today with you. Does that sound good? Sounds great. All right. Do we want to talk about first just defining what is a GMO? So that's the term a lot of folks know, GMO, which would be short for genetically modified organism. You also hear people say genetically engineered or GE. And for a long time, we had come to some kind of settlement about what that meant. And basically, you're intentionally altering the genetic material, if we're talking about food, of a crop or an animal to do something specific. And the line for a lot of folks, this is not what you do, what you learned about in your high school biology class where Mendel selected the best looking peas and that's the ones he bred to get like even better varieties of peas. Not like what we did, what we've done traditionally throughout agriculture. This is deliberate changes to the genetic material of this organism, often by putting in foreign genetic material, right? So you were using genetic material from a bacteria or a virus and putting it in the DNA of corn or soybeans or something like that. That was kind of our definition for a long time. Now we're entering this new era where there's also additional technologies on top of that first generation. There's a second generation where we're talking about gene editing. So that's no longer putting other material in there, right? Adding somebody else's DNA. They're going in and deleting or turning off often or changing something about the genetic material that's there. And so there's a lot of fighting about, well, we've always fought about what rules do we use to regulate those first generation GMOs. We haven't really figured that out adequately. And now we have this second generation that's even more complicated. So we don't have great rules for that yet either. And this is the technology that's known as CRISPR. Is that correct? CRISPR is one type of gene editing, but it's one technology. There are others, but they fall under that tree of gene editing. Right. And so I'm so glad you mentioned going back to Mendel, because 
what dietitians are told and what the public is told is that, hey, don't worry about genetic modification. We've been doing it forever. And actually, this is totally a different beast. We are, as you say, inserting genetic material from one species into another. Now, I also want to mention, because I do happen to live in the Midwest, and much of what genetically modified crops do is that they're able to withstand the spraying of an increasing number of herbicides. And I think that that definition is rarely relayed to the consumer, that really what this is all about, what has made the most money, is the ability to sell farmers not only the patented seeds that are genetically modified, but also the increasing number of herbicides. Exactly. That's a huge part of the story. So the PR that we've been dealing with for 20 years now, right, about the supposed magic of this technology and how transformative it was. And the examples they always use are, we can make a certain crop be grown with extra amounts of this nutrient, or we can make a crop that is going to stand up better to drought. And those things do exist. There's a lot of controversy. I don't think we have a regulatory system that can actually examine well enough whether those are safe to eat. We need to do that before you go down that road. But what they don't brag about as much is what the vast majority of GMO crops and the marketplace are actually engineered to do is to withstand being sprayed with weed killers. And it's not a coincidence that the companies that really popularized these seeds Bayer, Monsanto, Dow, DuPont, Syngenta, they were chemical companies first that sold things like weed killers, like Roundup, and then they got into the GMO seed business and they made Roundup-ready seeds. So you can spray the whole field with Roundup, the weeds are supposed to die, and the GMO corn that has been engineered to survive Roundup will live. And so not Surprisingly, to anybody except our regulators, we saw a tremendous ramp up in the use of things like Roundup. And we need to look at that, too. There are public health implications of that. And that ball just got dropped in this approval process, in this regulatory process. And now, 20 years later, we're finally having a conversation about what do we know about Roundup. And that went hand in hand with the adoption of these crops that were designed to be grown with that chemical. Right. And so now that we've got weed resistance to glyphosate or the active ingredient in Roundup, we are now seeing spraying with 2,4-D and dicamba. And really what's so dangerous about these herbicides is that, especially with regard to dicamba, it moves. And so at least here in the Midwest, what we've seen is large swaths of damage to fruit and nut trees. I just spoke with a beekeeper who is having to move from Arkansas because so many of the flowering plants that gave his bees nectar and pollen have died because of dicamba drift, so they have to move to another part of the country in order to continue their honey business. So this is real tragedy, and I don't understand why news outlets like the New York Times does not recognize this and why they are so quick to go along with the program and say, oh, yeah, they pose no health threat. It's super frustrating for everybody who does any work on this issue. It's a real problem. And I think there's a couple layers of it. I mean, one, I think a lot of reporters aren't comfortable or familiar with science. And this industry has really embedded itself in our research institutions, especially like at land-grant universities. And all the credentials are there. These are the preeminent research institutions that study our food system. And 
they're not really doing health and safety studies. Are these a good idea? They're doing research and development studies. What is the next GMO going to be? And they're doing that because that's where their funding comes from in large part. And then that really infects like what advice is given and what it means to be modern and efficient. And that snowball just keeps rolling. And then compound that with there's a lot of reporters who don't know anything about agriculture or farming or, or rural communities. We've seen that since the election, right? They've really struggled to look at rural America and understand what it means to be a farmer and what challenges they face. And so you have scientific, supposedly experts saying, don't worry, there's nothing to see here. It's totally safe. And then you're talking to farmers and reporters aren't great at parsing out. There's different types of agriculture. There's different pressures put on different types of farmers. These were this technology really changed what it meant in terms of labor for farmers and, and how you deal with weeds. And all of these complexities really escape a lot of reporters if they're doing a one-off story on this supposed technological fix. Mm-hmm. And I think we've been raised with the idea that if someone has a white lab coat on and they've got a PhD and they're affiliated with a land-grant university, that they are certainly trustworthy. I think that's why the industry has paid such great attention to focusing or communicating with registered dietitians too, because we are oftentimes the people who consumers want to go to and trust about food education. And when the nice people from Monsanto and Bayer come and speak with us and they bring us GMO answers, they have all these real slick education material and they say, they're safe, don't worry about it. We don't know any better because we typically don't study soil science and plant science, and we're not out there in the field with farmers, which is why I really appreciate your organization. And for our listeners, I just want you to know it's foodandwaterwatch.org. Hear from different sides about what's truly going on. This is a great nonprofit organization. Okay, Patty, so let's dive into, you've got a great piece here. GMOs aren't going to save nutrition problems or feed the world. They're about corporate control and profit. And so you really take on five reasons why everyone should be concerned about genetically engineered foods and why it's so important that our foods be labeled so that the consumer can make a wise decision in the marketplace. So certainly GMOs increase corporate control of food. I've seen, I'm sure you have too, the contracts that farmers have to sign when they plant a genetically engineered crop. Yeah, and the business model of GMOs is really important. And we don't have a great place to look at that when things get approved or when we you know, we haven't really had the national discussion about this. It just started showing up on our food supply. The business model is very, very different than what farmers did for a long time. So there's a lot of folks who just have dedicated a lot of time to just identifying the intellectual property and what that has meant. And what it means is if you don't use GMOs because you are certified organic and you can't to be organic or you don't like the technology for some reason, you have less options in the seed market than you used to because this business model of GMOs kind of locks up genetic material, puts patents on it, and you're not going to find a non-GMO version of those good genetics, right? I mean, there's a lot of the business model is really troubling. And even with the piece we talked about earlier about the weed killers, the herbicides, we're now seeing when when folks talk about that, we talk about, you know, the industrialization of agriculture, the image a lot of folks use is a treadmill. We talk about the chemical treadmill. And so, you, you know, you've used the same weed killer year after year. It worked for a while. Not surprisingly, in nature, things develop resistance, right, including weeds. And so now we have super weeds, that don't die when you spray them with Roundup, so you have to hit them with something heavier, right? Maybe an old, an older, more toxic 
herbicide like 2,4-D or dicamba. So now there's genetic engineering to put those traits into the crops. So we're seeing more of those. You mentioned that those chemicals don't stay put. They drift. Dicamba in particular is known to drift. So we're hearing as we enter this planting year that more farmers in the Midwest are buying dicamba-ready soybeans, not because they think it's the right choice for them because of their market or the yield or they, they heard good things, but because they think they need to have that trait to protect themselves from drift from their neighbors who are spraying because they chose to plant dicamba-ready soybeans. So it's like they're literally being forced into this because of the way that these products behave out in the real world. And it's taking choice out of the hands of farmers, which is the exact opposite of what they need. With crazy weather and crazy markets, they need more choices to be more flexible. And this system gives them less. Exactly. Patty, let me take one break because we're at the halfway mark. And I need to let our listeners know that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Patty Lavera. She is the Assistant Director of Food and Water Watch. So a lot of the promises that farmers and consumers have been given do not hold any weight. We've seen more chemical use. We've been promised less. We've also been promised greater yields with these crops. And I look through some of the farm journal magazines every chance I get, and I look at how farmers are being advertised to, and yield is by far the biggest promise that they get. But you report that actually we're not seeing a greater yield with these crops. Yeah, over the Roughly 20 years that we've seen. It's the mid-90s was when Roundup-ready crops really kind of came onto the scene. And by the 2000s, they've been pretty widely adopted. The yield improvements that were there in the first couple of years have flattened out. So it really doesn't live up to the hype that they're going to solve everybody's problem through increased yields. And they're more expensive, right? You're buying more expensive seeds to use this technology. You're locked into buying certain chemicals that go with them. And so practically, there's a lot of folks we've talked to who are going to non-GMO because they're like, that system doesn't make sense for me anymore. Then if you take a step back and you go bigger picture, whose problem is yield solving? And we hear a lot about feeding the world and hunger is a political problem. It's not a yield problem, right? It's how we distribute food. It's not that there's not enough food. Right now, there are farmers in the Midwest, United States, who can't give away soybeans because we have so many. We're dependent on export markets. A political problem closed a bunch of those export markets because we had a a trade war. And yield is not going to solve that problem that there's last year's soybeans that are still hanging out by the time people are planting next year's. So that's a convenient argument for them to make, but it misses the boat on a lot of other problems that are happening in agriculture. Exactly. And you mentioned earlier in our conversation how organics do not allow genetic engineering. So we're not allowed to use the products, the herbicides, the pesticides that are used with these genetically engineered crops, less chemical fertilizers, overall a much healthier way to produce crops for both soil, plants, animals, pollinators, etc., And you mention in this fact sheet that genetically modified crops and organic cannot coexist, even though we've been sold that somehow you can have a good relationship with your neighbor and you can have a conventional field where GMOs are planted right next to an organic field. It doesn't work so easily, does it? Especially for certain crops, this is a real problem. And unfortunately, the problem usually falls squarely on the organic folks. It's not really shared in terms of the burden. So for certain crops, especially corn and soybeans, 
for years and years and years, we have heard, whispered about, it wasn't really talked about, the organic farmers being very concerned that the genetic material, the pollen, especially from corn, doesn't stay put from GMO corn, could end up in the fields where they're trying to grow organic or non-GMO, which needs to be kept separate in the marketplace, and that they would end up with contamination. Genetic drift is what they talk about. And so there are things that organic farmers have to do by their rules, by the organic standards. They have to have a buffer area where you're planting the crop with organic seed, you're managing it organically, but you have to sacrifice it and you can't sell it organically because it's in that buffer area where the risk of contamination is high. They have to use all separate trucking and sorting facilities and and grain silos and all that stuff. And that usually almost always all falls on the organic or non-GMO user side of the fence, not on the GMO user whose product isn't staying put. That's the genetic drift. It keeps going on, keeps costing organic farmers money. Finally, we got the USDA to start asking them about it, and they are reporting that it costs them money. It took years to even get USDA to acknowledge they needed to ask the question. And then we have that chemical drift problem, too, that we talked about earlier, right? If your neighbors are using something like dicamba and it doesn't stay put and it drifts over to your orchard or your organic farm, that is going to economically harm you. Sometimes it ends up in court. Sometimes it ends up with insurance companies, but it's really wreaking havoc in the countryside between neighbors. Absolutely. And farmers cannot afford the lawsuits. It's a mess. And I just want to make sure that our listeners understand that coexistence is a lie. It just doesn't happen that way. So all of this is to set us up for our discussion about GMO labeling, which American consumers have been clamoring for for years. And the reason why I don't want to buy genetically modified food is for all of the reasons that we just spoke about, about what happens, the injustices that happen to farmers in rural communities. And I don't want to support a system that has this amount of spraying of herbicides. So we're going to have labels. A law was passed. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has proposed new guidelines for labeling foods. Food makers will be required by federal law now to use labels starting in 2020. One would think that the label would say GMO because that's what we've been talking about for all this time. But no, the labels are going to use a term called bioengineered. How did that happen? It's a long story. I'll I'll try to give the short version. There's a lot of trauma involved in this story for a lot of people who worked real hard trying to get this labeling. So lots of countries around the world require this labeling, over 60, and American companies who operate in those countries provide it. So it's not like they've never heard of this concept. But when it came to the United States for years and years and years, the processed food companies and the biotech industry, the ones selling these GMO seeds, they had successfully fought off attempts to require labeling here. So fast forward into the mid-2000s, 2010-ish, and people started to take this on at the state level, and they started to make some progress. People had had it on the ballot and came close in a couple of states, and folks in Vermont passed it in their state legislature. 2015, they passed the law. It went into effect in 2016, and it said, in Vermont, you're going to label where these ingredients are. And it was very practical. They gave companies a year to do it, and companies started to comply. I bought products in Maryland and D.C. I went out looking for them, and I found them, and they were labeled for Vermont, and the companies figured it out and sent stuff to the East Coast that complied with the law in Vermont. It wasn't a crisis. Vermont didn't run out of snack foods, right, because that's where most GMOs end up is in processed foods. That's right. It was starting to work. It was fine, but the industry didn't like that, and so when Vermont passed that law, they came to Washington, D.C., 
And they said, we can't have these states doing this. We need Congress to step in and stop this. We're going to have different laws in different states, and it'll be the end of days. And it was a big fight for a year. The end of that year, we prevented worse versions that were out there, but Congress passed a law in 2016 that said, states, you don't get to do this anymore. The federal government's going to do this. USDA, you write some rules for labeling. And so that's why we just got those rules at the end of 2018 out of the USDA. They were put in place because of this law that Congress passed. And there's a bunch of bad stuff in that law that we now see in these final rules. One of them is that this label will say bioengineered. It will give companies an option to not put words on a package, you know, like put ink on the paper of the package, but it will let them put a symbol on that you have to use a smartphone to scan. And it had a whole bunch of loopholes in the definitions of what triggers a label. So we don't like what just came out of USDA at the end of 2018, but a lot of that unfortunately was baked into their instructions from Congress. Exactly. And not all genetically engineered foods will be labeled. So foods that are highly processed might not have that label on it. As a consumer of organic meat and dairy, one of the reasons why I choose that is because I don't want to eat dairy products or meat from an animal that has been fed GMO grain. In the marketplace, Let's say you're buying milk in the grocery store, that cow has consumed GMO grain, that milk product will not have to bear the BE or the bioengineered label, correct? Correct. And this has been a struggle with lots of wrapping our heads around where these GMOs go in the food supply. And so the standard in this new rules from USDA would be that the animal itself, if you're eating meat from an animal that itself was genetically engineered, which we're not that far away from. We have genetically engineered fish that have been approved. That would get labeled, but the animal just eating the grain would not trigger labeling. Exactly. One of the many definition problems we have in these rules. Yeah, and this is a really important point to make because in addition to having this label that we have to now navigate, you know, this whole new term of bioengineered, what is that? (laughs) We have to also put that in juxtaposition of all the other labels that a consumer sees in the marketplace. So USDA organic, we know that that label means that there are no genetically modified ingredients used in the production of that product. But then we also have the non-GMO project label. And I see this on foods that were never genetically engineered, sort of like the no cholesterol labels that used to appear on things that would never have cholesterol, like a banana, for example. Mm -hmm. And it's a sore point for me because I feel like it could be misleading to consumers. And I think loaves of bread are a great example of this. So you can have the non-GMO sticker on there, but that doesn't mean that the wheat that was put into that bread was not sprayed with an herbicide. It's confusing because consumers then wonder, well, gosh, why does this loaf of bread that says non-GMO, why does that have glyphosate residue on it? Like, why would we find that there? Yeah, it's a a very good question. And we get into a lot of this. It's it's, it's a ridiculous situation that puts all of this burden on consumers to do a really crazy amount of research, right? Yeah. Um, And homework because we aren't just labeling the thing that people want to know. And this is an argument we made a lot, when we, especially in state legislatures, where we really were making progress to get good labeling. And we were like, if we want to tell people where GMOs are, then let's set up a system to label GMOs. 
in the absence of that, which is essentially where we are now, we have all this other stuff pop up that's supposed to do double duty, right? Organic is one way you know it's not GMO, but organic actually tells you a bunch of other stuff. It's a big umbrella that label that tells you a bunch of things. It's pretty useful. Non-GMO is very specific. It's just telling you this didn't start with GMO seeds. It's not saying fertilizer or herbicide use or the other practices like organic is, right? So this puts a lot of burden on consumers when we could have a much more orderly way of doing this, which is if you planted GMO seeds, which you know, because it says so on the bag, because you paid more for them <laughs> because they're GMO, right. we carry that information through the supply chain and put it on the finished product. That would actually be the smarter and more efficient way to do this. But because especially the biotech industry doesn't want it, it hasn't happened politically. Exactly. And I think transparency is so much what consumers want. And our democracy really is supposed to be dependent upon this level of transparency. So you and I are both at the same point where we're looking at these labels and saying, wow, we need a major consumer education campaign. Now, I do want to ask, because we talked about CRISPR earlier. So just to be clear, those new gene editing technologies, they are not allowed in organic systems Will they have to have the bioengineered label? It's a good question. So organic has a very rigorous process. If people have ever heard about the National Organic Standards Board, it's this amazing stakeholder process, and they meet twice a year, and they're having this conversation to make sure that they stay current, and they update the list of what isn't allowed. And they're having this exact conversation to make sure they include gene editing techniques as what you cannot do in organic. So they're working on that to get that down in the letter of the law. When it comes to this bioengineered label... The definitions are really vague, and there's a lot of us reading it, and we're really worried that, that these newer techniques would not result in a label that wouldn't trigger labeling. And that's yet another problem with these USDA rules. Mm, yeah, very concerning. We just have a couple of minutes left, so I want to just focus on the new GMO labeling law. What do you want consumers to walk away with? I think what people need to walk away with is they're going to have some, they're going to continue to have homework to do, unfortunately, in the grocery store. The best place to do your homework is at home, right? Mm -hmm. On the computer or on the 800 number for these companies and make your list of companies that you've checked them out and you like them. Organic still tells you a lot. We are always fighting about making the organic standards better, but it still tells you a lot. And it does tell you they didn't use GMOs. But I think the biggest lesson is, we get disinformation or don't get disinformation because of our political process. This is a policy decision. We don't get food labels because the food companies are benevolent and they feel like giving it to us. We don't get nutrition facts for that reason. We don't get the ingredient list. Like people had to have fights and change the regulations so we get that information and we're going to have to build up our muscles and build up our oomph as a food movement and go back at this again with some new elected officials and be like, you guys need to take another shot at this because what you did in 2016 wasn't right. And that's something people need to talk to their members of Congress about and say, I am not happy with the status quo. I need you to start looking at food labels. Mm -hmm. I think that's really good advice. Something else that I tell consumers is check the ingredient label because unless that food is certified organic, if you turn that product over and you see anything on the ingredient label that mentions soy, corn, canola, cottonseed oil, and sugar from sugar beets, you can rest assured that that is going to be from a genetically modified crop. So I want to make sure that people go to your website for sure. I will provide a link to the great resources that you've provided. And I want to thank you for your time. 
Well, thanks for having me. It's great. All right. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios. I want to especially thank my guest, Ms. Patty Lavera, Assistant Director of Food and Water Watch, where she coordinates the food team. The website is www.foodandwaterwatch.org. We'll provide a link along with the interview. Patty, thanks again. Thanks for having me. 